Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Where Was This in History Class? Today we're going to focus on the scientific revolution. In order to better understand the scientific revolution, we need to set the context. As I tell my students, history is really just a story, and you need to understand the beginning or prologue or context in this case uh, so that you can fully appreciate the story that is about to happen. So uh, instead of saying once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away, we're just going to begin with the fact that our story begins in Europe around the time of the Protestant Reformation. Now, as many of you already know, the Protestant Reformation was a time of incredible unrest, which was marked by warfare, social upheaval, and changing alliances. The German monk Martin Luther wrote his 95 Theses, which many of us already know, but um, what we need to fully understand is that this creates a firestorm that would eventually cause some Europeans to leave the Catholic Church. As a result, those who broke with the Catholic Church sought a different relationship with God, and this led to the creation of other forms of Christianity, Christianity, which can be seen in the Lutheran and Calvinist sects or groups that formed uh, during this time period. Eventually, King Henry VIII is going to want to get in on this forming of new religions action, and this will allow him uh, to create the Anglican Church, also known as the Church of England, because British people need to have multiple names uh, for institutions, and you know they're proper and apparently drink more tea than us. Anyway, we're not here to debate the reasons why King Henry VIII formed his own church. Rather, we are here to figure out what Europe was like just after or as a result of the Protestant Reformation, as uh, the scientists were beginning to create or establish what becomes known as the Scientific Revolution. However, on a side note, I have to, uh, I have to say this. If you start talking to someone in the future and they bring up how much they admire King Henry VIII's dating advice, you need to run away from that person, and block them from all social media. I do not think that King Henry VIII is the type of male role model that we want our significant others to emulate. But like I said, we are not here to debate how or why Henry VIII chose to break away from the Catholic Church, although I'm pretty sure it had very little to do with love. All right? No, uh, no Taylor Swift songs or ballads being written about Henry VIII. Now, I mentioned these previous events, such as the Protestant Reformation and Henry VIII's actions, because this provides us with the context to properly study the time period. The Catholic Church is feeling defensive at this point. It's like that time when I was in high school, I took a dodgeball to the face. I may or may not have been crying on the mat. Uh, when my phys ed teacher asked me how I was doing, I then became defensive and acted like I, uh, nothing was wrong, even though I'm pretty sure I was bleeding. That's like the Catholic Church at this point. All right, They've been pushed around, and um, in their opinion, they're, they're being attacked. Uh, now, the question is, why are they being attacked? They're being attacked because the uh, there was corruption in the Catholic Church. Okay, There existed this corruption, and now they were facing rival Christian religions such as Luther and Calvin's new sects or groups. These forms of Christianity and their churches meant less Christians practicing Catholicism, um, Catholicism which then means less financial support for the Catholic, uh, Catholic Church in the long run. Okay, so we've got this backdrop of a defensive Catholic Church, but we also need to acknowledge revolutionary changes that were caused by the printing press. This new invention is an absolutely incredible device which is going to uh, just accelerate all the different changes that are going on in Europe at this time. To live during this time period when books became faster, easier, and cheaper to produce, there had to be a thirst for knowledge that went along with it. The effects of humanism and the emerging ideas of intense study along with the desire to learn about one's environment created a unique environment for artists, writers, and then scientists, as we're going to find out. So imagine taking the passion of Leonardo da Vinci, 
or the fiery nature of Michelangelo, but instead of studying human anatomy or the latest painting technique, you placed all that time and energy into the study of mathematics and science. This is why this period stands out as a revolution. In terms of discoveries or accomplishments, this time period will see incredible advances made in the field of mathematics, science, medicine, and astronomy. But in order to have a revolution or a great change, we need to first understand what the original ideas and beliefs were and what humans knew about the universe and astronomy were based on the teachings of two main Greek writers known as Ptolemy and Aristotle. The works of these Greek writers were being used for well over a thousand years after they were originally recorded. To say that another way, the ideas of the Greek writers were accepted as basically universal law and they were not challenged for well over a th- uh, well over a thousand years, um, at least in Europe. Okay, as we're going to discover, these ideas are going to be challenged first by Islamic scholars, and then eventually by the Europe- European scientists. Um, and out, out of um, out of that challenge will come a completely different system. All right, hence the revolution. Now, if you're using a standard high school textbook, you will notice that it may give the reader the impression that the only theory in town was was Ptolemy's until Europeans came around during the 1500s and corrected his mistakes. However, this version of history is just too simple and does not tell much more uh, does not give us the much more complex history of the of the situation. But let's tell the story how it unfolded chronologically. To begin, Ptolemy's theory was referred to as the geocentric model because Ptolemy believed that the earth was the center of the universe and that everything in the universe orbited around the earth. Today, we may look at this theory as proof of our society's superiority or our intelligence, but I would remind some of you listening that even people today do not always acknowledge the scientific proof that is right in front of their faces. So uh, yeah, I'm looking at you flat earthers. The earth is round, get over it, but I digress. All right, so back to the issue with textbooks. So many textbooks leave out the essential bridge or connection, which helps explain how history went from the incorrect theories of the Greeks to the groundbreaking theories and revelations of Europeans such as Copernicus, Brahe, Kepler, and Galileo. The connection or bridge can be seen when one looks at the Islamic Golden Age, which occurred before the Italian and Northern Renaissance movements. Um, And to be fair, many historians believe that without the Islamic Golden Age, the Renaissance movements that have probably been discussed at some point in your history classes, um, they would not have been possible in Europe without the contributions of those Islamic scholars. While Europe struggled during the period known as the Dark Ages, the Islamic civilizations in places like Spain and the Middle East were experiencing the height of their civilizations, which included the translating of Greek and Roman texts. The translation of these texts led to further discoveries in math, science, and medicine by Muslim scholars, whose works would eventually make it throughout Europe uh, as a result of conflict, trade routes, and mutually shared ideas that were discussed at universities throughout Europe by both Christian and Muslim scholars, especially in places like uh, like Spain, all right, um, which s- several of you have probably already learned about, uh, which will be reconquered during the Reconquista. But it, uh, places like Cordoba um, were incredible places of learning during that time period. This is important to understand because without it, it would appear uh, to readers of certain textbooks that the scientific revolution happened on its own. But this is simply an incomplete version of history, and we have to correct that. Okay, so now that we've clarified um, this missing piece of of history, if you will, we can move closer to the scientific revolution. As uh, these Islamic books made their way throughout Europe, 
It is possible that European scientists read the books and then used these idea, ideas as the new base from which to build their theories. Regardless of how this was accomplished, the one thing that was certain was that two different civilizations would come to the conclusion that Ptolemy's geocentric, that means Earth-centered model, was simply incorrect and it needed to be fixed. It may seem like we are tearing uh, Ptolemy apart here, but I just want to add to the point that even though Ptolemy's geocentric theory um, is wrong, what I would like to acknowledge is how much of his um, contributions to the mathematical world uh, were made during this time period. Okay, so now that we've clarified this missing part of history, we can move closer to the scientific revolution, or at least I feel comfortable, more comfortable moving closer to the scientific revolution. As these Islamic books, the works of these Islamic scholars made their way throughout Europe, it is possible that European scientists read the books and then used these ideas as the new base from which to build their own theories. Regardless of how this was accomplished, the one thing that was certain was that two different civilizations are now going to realize that Ptolemy's geocentric model, the Earth-centered model, is incorrect and it needed to be fixed. It may seem like that we are uh, tearing apart Ptolemy here, but I just want to add this one point that even though Ptolemy's geocentric theory is, um, is incorrect, what I would like to acknowledge, uh, especially according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, I'm going to quote them here, um, what cannot be disputed is that the mass that the mastery of mathematical analysis that Ptolemy ex uh, exhibited was unparalleled uh, well into this time period. So even though his geocentric model is incorrect, all right, what we do need to acknowledge is that um, he is a mathematical genius, and we, that cannot be disputed. All right, so moving on. The first European to dispute Ptolemy's geocentric theory was Nicholas Copernicus. All right, this Polish guy who around the 1540s is going to finally publish his ideas of the heliocentric theory or sun-centered model of the universe. Copernicus' theory placed the sun at the center of the universe rather than the earth. This is a, a revolutionary change. Copernicus was weary of publishing his ideas because he knew how popular Ptolemy's earth-centered model was. So Ptolemy's earth-centered model during this time period is the accepted version. Okay, and it's accepted by governments. It's accepted by the church. So to all of a sudden uh, present a different option, you're kind of playing with fire, okay? And Copernicus realizes, realizes this, and, and he gets pretty nervous. Um, as a result of this, uh, in, in his publication, all right, according to Sheila Rabin of the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, Copernicus adds a dedication to Pope Paul III. And it's, it's kind of um, theorized that he does this probably for political reasons, in which he expressed his hesitancy about publishing the work and the reasons he finally decided to publish it, all right? So it's almost like he has to justify to the reader um, his fears and his doubts and, and his apprehension before he does it, all right? It's hard for us to truly appreciate Copernicus's doubts and fears during this time period because many of you uh, publish these terrible TikTok videos without even hesitating, but what Copernicus was doing was considered dangerous, and I can't even begin to imagine what was going through his head as he sent his work to the printing press, all right? If things do not work out, it's your life that's on the line, not um, you know a, a, a terrible TikTok video that's going to stay with you through college and, and people are going to bring up and mock in high school or that I do for warm-ups in class, but whatever. So uh, we're going to move on here. 
So you have to ask yourself the question, is history relevant today? Well, according to author Yasmin Manas Faruqi, all right, currently researchers are investigating whether it was possible that Copernicus visited the Vatican Library in Rome and had uh, possibly seen Ibn al-Shatir's 14th century manuscript illustrating his concept of planetary motion. It will be fasc fascinating to see if... Um, these historians can prove whether or not Copernicus visited the Vatican Library, because if they can, we are going to have to add that to the history books and change the history as we know it. So history does change. We have to we have to remember that. From here, Copernicus's work is going to be proven correct by Tycho Brahe, a Danish astronomer who spent his nights studying the sky, which sounds incredibly romantic until you realize that he was studying the sky every night possible, and that this probably left little time for candlelit dinners. Fun fact about Brahe, though. Uh, he once got into an argument with a fellow classmate, which then uh, kind of escalated and eventually led to a duel. And as a result of that, it led to Brahe having part of his nose cut off. He then had to wear a metal prosthetic uh, nose, if you will, to cover up the missing part. So the next time your parents say that going to school could be worse, I think we should take that more seriously. Because of Brahe's devotion, borderline obsession with the night sky, Copernicus' sun-centered uh, model was looking like the theory that the world should be going with. However, it would take the work of Brahe's assistant, Johannes Kepler, to take the work of Copernicus and Brahe to the next level. So this wouldn't be possible without Kepler. Kepler is another extremely uh, interesting figure in the story of the scientific revolution. Here's a guy who grew up poor. His father was a soldier. His uh, mother... Um, eventually has to be defended because she is accused of witchcraft. So Kepler spends a decent amount of fortune um, and time trying to defend her because apparently um, <laughs> the process to defend someone who is accused of witchcraft is apparently very expensive and very long, time-consuming. Uh, however, despite his growing up poor, his economic status, and his low place in society, Kepler displayed high intelligence and a thirst for knowledge at a very young age. He eventually came to study under Brahe, but it appears that Kepler was attempting to gain access to both Brahe's data as well as Brahe's money. Michael Fowler of the University of Virginia, in his article about Johannes Kepler, provides us with the quote that Kepler uh, writes to his mentor about his feelings that describe uh, Brahe. <clears throat> the quote states, so Kepler writes, My opinion of uh, Tycho, or Tycho uh, is this. He is superlatively rich, but he knows not how to make proper use of it as is the case with most, most rich people. Therefore, one must try to wrest his riches from him. The effects of the Protestant Reformation would eventually cause Kepler to leave Graz, where he was teaching, and he accepted Brahe's invitation to study in Prague in the year 1600. So during this time period, both Lutheran and Catholic institutions, they do not support or accept Copernicus, Copernicus's heliocentric theory. Therefore, Kepler had to keep his belief in Copernicus's theory to himself until he published the epitome of Copernican astronomy. This is considered by many to be the most influential book for those who believed in Copernicus's sun-centered model, and it would influence future astronomers such as Galileo, Copernicus, and Kepler, and uh, provide the foundation for other scientists to build upon as well. One of those scientists was Galileo. Galileo was born Galileo Galilei, but when you develop the telescope and lay the foundation for modern astronomy, as well as physics, uh, you, you get to be known by just one name, kind of like Prince. So uh, yeah, Galileo was the Prince of Astronomy. Or for you younger people, perhaps Lizzo, maybe, dare I say, Adele. I'm not really sure what you people listen to any, uh, these days. So, you know, just try to get my sense of humor. But you get my point. 
So Galileo was a big deal. So a little background on him. Galileo was a supporter of Copernicus's sun-centered theory, and he used this um, to improve his telescope, which then he used to view the moons of Jupiter and basically confirmed what Copernicus and Kepler theorized. Unfortunately for Galileo, his observations and evidence were made during the uh, what becomes known as the Catholic Reformation. And he lives in Italy, which was the center of the Catholic Church. Therefore, Galileo's work becomes a target for the Catholic Church, which was already on the defensive, as we've learned, because of things like the Protestant Reformation. And the Catholic Church is going to view Galileo's work as another attack on the Church's teachings. Galileo, uh, Galileo was all like, hey, the, uh, the Earth isn't the center of the universe. And the Catholic Church is going to push back and state, well, uh, listen, the Earth is the center of the universe because this helps prove that everything revolves around us because it just sounds perfect. And then Galileo pushes back. Yeah, but that's not true. So then the Catholic Church said, okay, then teach us and show us why we are wrong. No, just kidding. They didn't listen to him. Rather, they put him on trial before the infamous Inquisition. They didn't listen to uh, much of what he had to say. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure he did not get a fair trial. And of course, he was forced to admit that he was wrong. And then he was placed on house arrest for the remainder of his life. No Xbox, no cell phone, no social media. So now, our next topic must include the creation of the scientific method. Something that uh, many of you may not fully understand or may simply take for granted. But uh, before a modern version of the scientific method was created, there was the system that Aristotle used. All right, Aristotle's system was based on human reasoning, which sounds a lot um, like a great starting point. But Aristotle's system did not include controlled experiments, so they could not be replicated. Rather, Aristotle would have argued that human observation was to be conducted without interfering with the subject that you are observing. During the scientific revolution, many scientists and philosophers would disagree with Aristotle's system, and their contributions would eventually help shape what would become known as the scientific method. Francis Bacon was one of these men who advocated experimentation and observation in order to better understand science with the goal of improving people's lives. Uh, Francis Bacon truly wants to improve people's lives. He wants to use science for that specific uh, fact. Bacon was criticized by some during his time period as developing a system that was far too rigid or um, complex for real scientists to use. However, we need to remember that Bacon had more in common with, a, with that of a philosopher than a scientist. Therefore, his work can be attacked, but we have to remember to place his work in the correct context, as we've already discussed, which means that we have to acknowledge that during this time period, Bacon's work helped to uh, move the study of learning and science in a, a general progressive fashion. So he's moving it forward. I don't think he took away from uh, where science was going. The other individual that we have to discuss is uh, uh, Descartes, uh, Rene Descartes, a man who famously said, I think... Therefore, I am. This quote helps summarize his views on learning because he believed that a person should doubt everything. So for you teenagers who are listening, you should connect with Descartes. Question everything, ask why, but here's the catch. You need to then go out and find the correct answer. Descartes would go on to create four rules that he argued would lead one to the truth of any problem or situation. If one followed his rules, he believed and this is a direct quote, there cannot be anything so remote that it cannot eventually be reached, nor anything so hidden that it cannot be uncovered. So next time you're feeling a little snarky and your parents ask you what your problem is, just say, I'm only practicing what Descartes preached, which is why I doubt what you're saying. Then say, the only thing I can be sure of is that I think, therefore I am. They will look at you like you're crazy, but they'll also be impressed with your knowledge. 
you take that one at your own risk. Um, then drop your uh, your metaphorical microphone by saying scientific method. But then run away quickly because I have a feeling you're in serious trouble. Also, as a disclaimer, I must state that I do not recommend doing any of this. You will get in trouble, and I will deny that I ever said using Descartes was a good idea. Good luck, though. All right, so back to the scientific method. After Bacon and Descartes, the ideas will um, the ideas will be implemented and uh, reworked by scientists in the future, and eventually modern scientists will settle on the modern scientific method. I'm only going to give you the basic steps here, but this is uh, not a science class. I'm not Bill Nye the science guy. So if you want to learn more about it, you got to do your own research. So here in a nutshell is the scientific method. Step one, state your problem. Step two, gather information about your problem. Step three, form a hypothesis, which is really just an educated guess. Not guessing like some of you do on your test, but an educated guess. Intelligent, thoughtful, educated guess. Step four, experiment to test your hypothesis. Step five, collect, record, and analyze your observations and data. Step six, come to a conclusion that explains your results. Step seven, communicate your data to so that others can um, conduct the experiment as well, and then answer questions about your experiment. So for some of you in the real world, it would look like this. This might hit a little uh, close to home for some of my students. So here we go. Step one, um, your problem is that you can't find a date. So you're going you're to state that. Step two, you gather information as to why you can't find a date. Step three, your hypothesis is that you can't find a date because you use body spray like the kind middle school boys use. And if you switch to cologne, you will get a date. Step four, you try the cologne. Step five, you get a date. Step six, you conclude that it was the cheap body spray that held you back in life. Step seven, you post a bitmoji expressing how happy you are that you got a date and are now willing to share your conclusion so that others may test your experiment. All right, so this is, an, this is not an, an, uh, an actual experiment that needs, to, um, that needs a scientific method, of course, but you get the idea. And by the way, if you're still using body spray, then we need to have a totally different conversation, um, but we can do that for another episode. Okay, so we have covered astronomy and the scientific method. Meanwhile, we have left out the stranger ideas of these scientists like their belief in alchemy, which was the belief that various metals could be turned into gold with the right chemistry, or how they believe that astrology could help predict the future. But again, this is the beginning of science and should not be compared to our more modern science and uh, more modern forms of medicine, which we often take for granted. In fact, in an interview with Freakonomics Radio, uh, Dr. Jenna, a healthcare economist and physician at the Harvard Medical School, when asked to describe the history of Western medicine, stated, direct quote, that'll take about five to six minutes. You know, I would say, how about three words, trial and error. I think uh, if you think about medicine and how it has evolved, let's say in the last 100 to 200 years, the sorts of practices that are at some point in history, people thought were actually medicine. Uh, included drilling holes into people's skulls, uh, known as lobotomies. Even as late in the, as the 1940s and 50s, lobotomies were thought to have actually have a treatment effect in patients with mental illness, be it schizophrenia or depression. The practice of bloodletting, which is basically trying to remove the quote-unquote bad humors of the body, was thought to be therapeutic in patients. Things like mercury, which is no, <laughs> known as a downright toxic, uh, were used as treatments in the past. And that was in a time and place when I think it was very difficult to get evidence. But not only that, there was probably a perception of the field that it didn't allow for the ability to question itself. 
And in the last 50 plus years, probably 50 to 75 years, I think we've seen tremendous strides in the ability of the profession to constantly question itself. So basically what the, the doctor is saying here is that most of our modern medicine has only come in the last 50 to 75 years because doctors and scientists are willing to question themselves. They're no longer just doing things that they accepted to be correct. They're making sure they're testing it using the scientific method to make sure that we as patients get the best care that we can have. So we're going to move on uh, to uh, one of our, our last topics here. All right. So building off the work of Islamic physicians such as Avicenna, who was known throughout uh, Europe and the Middle East as the Prince of Physicians, European doctors were able to make advancements in medicine that were previously unknown to Europeans. Without this metaphorical bridge of knowledge that the Islamic scholars developed, which connected Greek and Roman knowledge with Western European scholars, Western medicine may have looked very different than what we are used to today. Around the same time that Copernicus was publishing his theory on the heliocentric model, Andreas Vesalus right, wrote, his book called uh, his his book called on the structure of the human body, which is considered to be the first accurate and detailed study of the human anatomy. This is pretty amazing because during this time period, it wasn't exactly exactly uh, socially acceptable to go around dissecting human bodies. So um, Andreas here needed to develop friendships with people who could protect him from being arrested and provide him with the opportunity to conduct autopsies. But in our modern society, I would not recommend following in his footsteps. Rather, please just go to medical school because cutting bodies up today in your basement is just weird and, of course, illegal. So definitely understand it's illegal. I, I want you to definitely understand that part. So um, after Vesalius, uh, in the 1600s, William Harvey, an English physician, concluded that the human heart was actually a pump that circulates blood throughout the body. Again, we may take this for granted. Uh, today, but it, for its time period, this was a major contribution to the field of medicine. I can imagine William Harvey um, kind of drawing a heart that someone, um, or taking a heart that someone drew for him on Valentine's Day, tearing it up and drawing a more accurate depiction of the heart, and then explaining to his Valentine how his drawing is better than the heart um, because it's actually a pump. Uh, I could just imagine, you know, the romantic sparks that were flying. So this brings us arguably to the most famous of the scientists of the scientific revolution, Sir Isaac Newton. Now, Newton is a truly unique figure. He has accomplished um, more uh, by 24 than most of us will accomplish throughout our entire lives. As some claim, Newton was sitting under a tree when an apple hit him on the head, and this led him down the path um, to come up with the theory of gravity. However, this story, according to Newton himself, um, is false. According to Newton, he was staring out of a window when he saw the apple fall. But even with his own explanation, some historians believe that the entire apple story might be made up um, as well. So Newton was believed to have made up several stories throughout his life. Um, especially uh, there's one famous one that stands out where he loses in a fire in his workshop or office. He loses uh, decades worth of notes and data. He goes around stating that a dog knocked over a candle, which then set all the data and the, the recordings, the observations on fire. However, most historians do not believe that Newton ever owned a dog and may have made up the story to kind of cover his own um, recklessness, if you will. Now, regardless of his possible uh, fabrication of these stories involving falling fruit or the fire starting dog, Newton was, for all intents and purposes, a genius. 
Over the course of 20 years, he developed the math necessary to prove his theory of gravity, which helped to explain the movement of the planets around the sun. His work basically ties together the theories and the work of those scientists who came before him. At one point, while working on his theory of gravity, Newton came to the conclusion that the math that was available to him during that time period was not sufficient uh, for his needs. And in order to continue, he had to basically invent a new branch of mathematics known as calculus, which is pretty incredible to, uh, to realize that you don't have what you need. So you go out and literally invent a new branch of math. So you're not really mad at your calculus teacher. You're mad at Newton. I uh, guess it is not surprising to find out that Newton invented his own branch of math when you consider, as author Bill Bryson states in A Short History of Nearly Everything, that Isaac Newton would sometimes wake up in the morning and when swinging his feet out of bed, he would sit frozen for hours by the rush of thoughts to his head. I've, I've heard of keeping a notebook near your bed just in case you come up with an idea, but to be frozen from the rush of thoughts must be incredible. And I guess that proves that I'm not a genius. I can already hear the snarky remarks of my students. So um, do me a favor, keep them to yourselves. However, uh, Newton's ending is fairly sad. Because he worked with mercury in an attempt to turn it into gold, Newton may have experienced mercury poisoning. To quote Stacy uh, Conrada, uh, a 1970, uh, so a direct quote here, a 1979 examination of Newton's hair showed astronomical amounts of mercury, probably as a result of all his alchemy experiments. However, whether or not this is true is um, still debated today. But one thing is, the, or one thing that is not debated is the fact that he experienced a nervous breakdown at some point and demonstrated eccentric and even bizarre behavior later in his life. One thing about Newton is that he was able to acknowledge that his accomplishments came, at least partially, as a result of the accomplishments of others. The modern version of, of his quote is, I quote, if I, have, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Even though our textbooks or our history classes may sometimes forget to acknowledge the accomplishments of others, it appears that Newton was willing to pay respect to those who came before him. And this may be his greatest lesson for those of us uh, historians who can't fully understand calculus. Thank you for listening, and I will uh, see you next week. Thank you.